Could you believe it? What a happy day. We are about to begin a new book. The Book of Numbers, Sefer Bamidbar. And we have a brand new Parsha podcast for you. Recording on the last day of May 2022. So if you're listening to this sometime in the future, that's where we are right now. It's the first day of the month of Sivan. It's the last day of the month of May. And we are about to begin a brand new book, Parshas Bamidbar, Sefer Bamidbar, the book of numbers. What a joyous occasion for all of us. Now, before we begin this week's Parsha podcast, I have some really good news to share with you. The month of May, the month that we're about to finish, has seen the most downloads of our podcasts here at Torch of any month since we began podcasting all the way back in 2012. It's an amazing blessing. It's a true honor. I thank you all for your amazing, consistent listenership, for sharing it with a friend, for submitting five-star reviews on iTunes. Thank you so much for your incredible support and friendship and listenership throughout the years. And I must say, and I try to remind y'all of this occasionally, try to reiterate this point, reinforce it, the true heroes of this enterprise are the generous benefactors who help contribute to our organization, to Torch. Without y'all, we wouldn't have any podcasts. And none of the amazing work that we do, if you want to see more about that, see our website, torchweb.org, for a sampling of some of the amazing work of Torch. But without the generous donors, we'd have to find like real jobs. I couldn't be here in the Torch Center with my microphone in our library, in our studio, recording, working, researching, learning, reading about the Parsha and preparing these podcasts, not just the Parsha podcast, but the entire suite of podcasts here from Torch, we'd have to get real jobs without the generous donors. But what would we do? We have a yeshiva education. I don't have a PhD. What are we going to do? We can't sell, we can't sell mortgages. Because now with the rates so high, no one's refinancing. I wasn't taught software engineering in yeshiva. So what would we do? Maybe absent the generous benefactors, we'd have to, in classic Texas style, we'd have to become roughnecks or wildcatters. I don't know. But thankfully, we're here in the Torch Center. We're here for another installment of the Parsha Podcast. And thanks to all of y'all who listen and support and contribute and share it with a friend and help keep the flame of Torch lit year after year. We're studying Torah together. What an incredible joy and what a momentous milestone in the month of May. We're wrapping up the month that has seen the most downloads of any month since we began many years ago. Now, I know you're curious. I know you. You're curious. You want to know... How many downloads did we get in May 2022? Are you curious? Do you want to know the answer? I know you do. I know you do. But I'm not going to tell you. Unless you send me an email. If you send me an email, rabbiwalbachima.com, I will reveal the metrics. I will tell you the secret. But I'm not going to say it on the podcast. 
And you know, I always try to encourage you to email me and I respond to every email, even though sometimes it takes a while. But I was always wondering, why don't people reach out and email sooner? You know, I very often get an email where people say, you know what, Rabbi Walby, I've been listening to you for years. I listen to it every week and all your various podcasts. We love it. And I want to share my story with you. I have this question, whatever it is. So I always wondered, what takes people so long to send me an email at rabbiwalbajima.com? And you know, like, eventually you're going to send me an email, right? We know that. You're going to send me an email, right? But why does it take people so long? That was a question I always had. And then it finally hit me. I found the answer. The answer is that if I was listening to that podcast, suppose I was on the other end of this microphone. I was listening to the podcast and I really enjoyed it. I probably would still be a little too shy to reach out. I wouldn't know what to say. How do I introduce myself? It's so strange to just introduce myself to someone I don't know. What if you won't respond to my email? And then I realized that this medium, you know, podcasts, it's the utopia for the introverts. You could just plug in your AirPods and listen by yourself and we get to study together. It's like this council, council of introverts. Me, the introvert on one end, and you, maybe you are an introvert on the other end. And of course, this is a generalization. We have a sizable extroverted audience as well. But I would say that, you know, podcast listening tends to skew to more introverted crowd, or at least it's an introverted pastime. So we're just, we're just introverts here. We're not going to write emails to strangers. But am I really a stranger? Am I really a stranger? After all you've listened, am I really a stranger? Break the ice. Send me an email. RabbiWalbyJim.com. And now I gave you some incentive. You'll be able to resolve your curiosity to know how many downloads we've had in May. So if you want to find out, this is a good excuse. It's a good excuse. If you don't email, I understand you. I sympathize with you. I probably wouldn't do, wouldn't email if I was in your position because I'm, it's a little bit uncomfortable. But if you're brave enough, RabbiWalby at gmail.com. So Parshas Bamidbar, I think, is one of my favorite Parshios. I actually looked at my notes from last year, um, and in my notes I wrote, oh, this is one of my favorite Parshios. So I guess it really is. And, you know, on the surface it seems kind of bland. But when you examine it and you try to study it deeply, I think you are exposed to some of the richness and the beauty of our Parsha. The Parsha, and really the book, is called Numbers. And there are a lot of counting and numbers and tallies and censuses. That's how our parsha begins. The Jewish people are counted. It's not the first time they've been counted. Rashi tells us the first comment in the book, Rashi tells us, when they left Egypt, they were counted. After the golden calf, they were counted again. And now that God wants to dwell amongst them, he's going to count them a third time. We will be counted again in this book at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. And the way they are counted is important to know. Every individual gives a coin, and the coins are tallied. We don't count Jews directly. And Moshe and Aaron, with the heads of the tribes, they are counting the nations on a tribe-by-tribe basis. In chapter 1, we read about the tallies. The tribe of Reuben, 46,500. 
Shimon, 59,300. Gad, 45,650. Judah, 74,600. Yisachar, 54,600. Zavulan, 57,400. Ephraim, 40,500. Menashe, 32,200. Benjamin, 35,4. Dan, 62,7. Asher, 41,5. Naphtali, 53,4. That's like the first chapter of the book. The details, the counting, all the people of these tribes from the age of, of 20 to 60. And by the way, those numbers, yes, they are on the test. You have to memorize them. But all, all kidding aside, we read that. You kind of, your eyes glaze over. It seems so bland. But that's how our Parsha begins. And we're told that the Levites are not counted. They're designated for God. They are in a class on their own, though indeed they will be counted later on. That's chapter one of our Parsha. Chapter two lays out the encampments of the people, how the various tribes were positioned in the camp. You have four groups of three tribes apiece, and they're encamped on the north, the south, the east, and the west of the camp with the Levites and the tabernacle in the center. And we read about the banners and the flags of the various tribes and their total population. So not just the population on a tribe-by-tribe basis, but also the total number of these four banner tribes. And that is chapter 2. And chapter 3, we read about the Levites. And it begins with the four sons of Aaron. Aaron, of course, is a Kohen, which is the one special family amongst the Levite tribe. And we read about his four sons, Nadav and Avil. Elazar and Isamar, and it revisits the tragedy of the death of Nadav and Avihu in the book of Leviticus. We are reminded that although Aaron had four sons, two of them died before God when they offered a sacrifice, an unauthorized sacrifice, a foreign fire before God. Ubanim lo and they had no children, so they had no continuity. And then as the way the counting of the Levites is introduced, and we talk about how the Levites are appointed to work in the tabernacle, and there's this elaborate ceremony of swapping the designation of the firstborn onto the Levites. And then we read about the three Levite families, the Gershon, Kahas, and Merari, and they are counted and are given specific charges in the Mishkan. I would be remiss if I did not mention the Rashi that we discuss every year. Every year we get to Parshas Bamidbar, we have to discuss this Rashi. I call it my bumper sticker Rashi, the one Rashi we would put on a bumper sticker. The verse tells us that Moshe is in charge of counting the Levites, and he has to count them from the age of one month. Unlike the Israelites who are counted from the age of 20, the Levites, at the age of one month, 30 days, that is when they are counted. And Moshe listened. The verse tells us that Moshe counted them, Alpi Hashem, as per the word, as per the instruction of Hashem. So there's an amazing Rashi here. This is in chapter 3, verse 16. Moshe complained to God, you know, to count the Israelites. It's not so hard. You need someone who's 20 years old. You know, they're up and about. They're an adult. They're mature. But how do I count small, suckling infants of the Levites. How do we know how many infants there are, how many babies there are in the Levites? They're not exactly hanging out in the center of the camp. So God said to him, You do your job, and I will do my job. I told you to count. You go count. 
how it's going to work out. If you can't do it, well, that's on me. That's not on you. Let me do my job. You do yours and I'll do mine. So Moshe went to every tent and he counted all the people that he was able to count. And once he got to the tent and was at the point where he couldn't count the people that he still needed to count, a heavenly voice, a prophetic voice announced how many babies there were in every tent. And thus the verse tells us that Moshe counted them as per the word of God, meaning he got like a divine assist. God helped him count the babies of the Levites, and he did it as per the word of God. But this Rashi, this amazing Rashi where Moshe is complaining, I can't do you, give me a job I can't do. This is a mission that you're entrusting me with, and I just, I'm not able to do it. And God says, well, if you can't do it, then it's my job. Anything that you cannot do is my job, and don't worry about my job. You do yours and let me do mine. This is my favorite Rashi. We have to mention it. So again, we're in chapter 3. The Levites are counted. They're swapped with the Israelite firstborn. The firstborn are redeemed with the five coins. And the parsha ends with the Levites who were of prime strength. So from the ages of 30 to 50. And they were in charge of the transport of the various parts of the Mishkan. It tells us about the transport, the responsibilities of the family of Kehas. And next week it picks up with the family of Gershon and Merari. And that's our Parsha. It's counting of people, population, the Levites and the Israelites and the various families of the Levites. It seems kind of bland and boring and technical. But when we look closer, we see gems everywhere. In previous years, we focused on how every individual is uplifted. The term, the verb used by the Torah to describe counting is su'u, which means to uplift Every individual, when they were counted, was given prominence and stature. Every individual was given an audience with Moshe and Aaron. Everyone has a specific role that they need to play. And that is hinted to by the counting of every individual amongst the tribes. Now, two years ago, you may remember, on Parshas Bamidbar, we unveiled the grand calculation of the 600,000 letters of the Torah, and we talked about how every individual soul corresponds to a letter in the Torah, and we're all vital and indispensable, and just like if you have a Torah scroll missing one letter, the Torah scroll is invalid, so to the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, each one of us is so critical and fundamental and indispensable, we are all needed. Today, I want to focus on what seems to be kind of a throwaway line. Of course, there's no throwaway lines, but it seems to be a verse that can easily be overlooked in our Parsha. When it starts the counting of the Levites in chapter 3, we read about Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron, and their untimely demise. The verse tells us these are the sons of Aaron, the Bechar, the eldest one, the firstborn, was Nadav, and then Avihu, and then Elazar and Isamar. And these were the Kohanim, they were anointed, they were designated for priesthood. And then it tells us in verse 4 about the death of Nadav and Avihu. Vayamas Nadav Avihu, and they died before God when they offered a foreign fire before God in the wilderness of Sinai. Ubanim lohayulahem, and they had no sons, they had no children, and... Elazar and Isam are the two remaining sons of Aaron. They were the Kohanim. They were the priests. On the face, so to speak, of Aaron, their father, they were the survivors. So our Parsha revisits 
the awful event that occurred on the day of the inauguration of the tabernacle. And we first read about this, of course, in Parshas Shemini a couple of weeks ago. This was the day after months of work, the tabernacle has been completed, and God is finally going to dwell amongst us. And you have this terrible, tragic story where Nadaravi, the two princes of the Jewish people, the heir apparents of Moshe and Aaron, the crown jewels of our nation, they brought an unauthorized sacrifice. They brought an unauthorized offering into the Holy of Holies, and they were killed by a fire that descended from heaven. This is in Leviticus chapter 10. And a fire emerged from before God, and the fire consumed them. The Talmud, she tells us, quite memorably, that two ropes of fire emanated from the Holy of Holies, and those two ropes split into four, and they went into the two respective nostrils of each of Nadav and Aviyu, and it consumed them. In the words of the Talmud, their souls were burned, but their bodies were untouched. Sreifas neshama v'guf kaim, their neshama, their soul was burned, but their body was untouched. But this is such a shocking development. And I was trying to grapple with the story, trying to figure out what happened. And of course, it's important not to evaluate it with infantile simplicity. These are not just two over-eager thrill-seekers, two whippersnappers who wanted the rush of offering an unauthorized sacrifice and died as a result. In fact, quite the contrary. In the aftermath of this tragedy, all the way back again in chapter 10 of Leviticus, Moshe comforts Aaron and he tells him that these two people, not even a view, the two people died, your two sons, your two eldest sons, were actually greater than you and me, than Moshe and Aaron. And Rashi explains that Moshe was anticipating some sort of tragedy. He was expecting God to become sanctified through those who were close to him. And he tells Aaron, I thought that you and me, one of us, or maybe both of us, were on the chopping block. But it turns out that your two sons, Nadav and Aviyu, were even greater than you and me. Now, if Moshe is telling us that the two sons of Aaron were greater than Moshe and Aaron, he wasn't just lying to comfort Aaron. They actually were, at least on one dimension, greater than Moshe and Aaron. This is a stunning revelation. We have two people here, greater than Moshe and Aaron, on one dimension. They're dying, or they died, in such a shocking way, on the very same day as the inauguration of the tabernacle. And of course, this raises very difficult questions. You know, if they're so great, what were they thinking to bring an unauthorized sacrifice? What was their calculation? And we also have to understand what was their miscalculation. What did they get wrong? Now, these questions have been endlessly discussed by our sages. Our sages seem to be fascinated with the question of the calculation and miscalculation of Nadav Navio. Everyone's trying to figure out how this unthinkable tragedy happened. How did these two giants, again, at one level, greater than Moshe and Aaron, how did they blunder so badly that they died on the day of the inauguration of the Mishkan? They marred, they dampened, 
what should have been one of the happiest days in history. Again, God is coming to dwell amongst us. What a happy day. And then we have these two people, crown Jews of the Jewish people, heir parents of Moshe and Aaron, greater in one dimension than Moshe and Aaron, and they die in this shocking, tragic way. So the sages are all discussing this question, and there doesn't really seem to be a consensus among the sages. And I made a list here of all the various reasons and explanations and justifications and rationales offered by our sages. I'm trying to figure out the reason for their demise. And it doesn't seem to have, you know, a fundamental idea that everyone can get behind. So, for example, you look at Rashi back in chapter 10 of Leviticus. He offers two explanations. The first one he says is that their mistake was that they ruled without consulting Moshe. They preempted Moshe in rendering a ruling. They should have consulted him, and they didn't, and that was their flaw, and that's why they died. Alternatively, Rashi tells us, they were drunk. They walked into the Holy of Holies inebriated, and that is why immediately after recounting their death, the Torah tells us that you cannot come into the Holy of Holies or into the temple, really, under the influence Now, you look at the Midrash, the Midrash offers other justifications for this disaster. Says the Midrash, this is in Vayetra Rabbah 26. There are four reasons why Nadav and Aviyu died. Number one, they entered the Holy of Holies when they should not have entered. Number two, they offered an offering that they should not have offered. Number three, a third reason, is that they brought a foreign fire, meaning that they brought a fire from the wrong location. They used an unsanctified fire as opposed to a sanctified fire. Finally, number four, because they did not consult with each other. They each operated independently. Continues the Midrash, and it adds even more reasons. And again, it says something that we've heard before. They were drunk. That's the first reason in the additional reasons of the Midrash. Alternatively, they came with insufficient priestly Vestments, they weren't wearing the complete suite of garments that the Kohanim need to wear. It says they were missing the me'il, which is like the robe. Or maybe they didn't wash their hands and feet when they walked in. Or maybe because they had no sons, they were not married or they had no sons. Another Midrash attributes their death as a delayed punishment of what happened at Mount Sinai when they experienced this high level of prophecy, but they ate and drank, meaning they didn't have you know, the proper amount of reverence for that experience. There are so many reasons here offered. I was trying to figure out this question. Why did these two giants, why did they die? So we have Rashi and the Midrash, and the Talmud adds something else. This is the Talmud, the book of Sanhedrin, page 52a on the bottom. The Talmud says that Moshe and Aaron were the two leaders of the Jewish people. And they were walking. Maybe they were talking, consulting. And behind them were Nadav and Avihu. And behind them were the rest of the Jewish people. And Nadav and Avihu were talking amongst each other. And they said, when will these old people finally die? These two old people, Moshe and Aaron, when will they finally die so you and I can lead the nation? And God said, so to speak, oh, is that what you think is going to happen? Let us see who dies first. Let us see who buries who. 
You think that, you know, let them finally die already. Come on, kick the bucket already so we can lead. Actually, they will bury you. Concludes the Talmud. This is like the old saying that people say that the old camels are carrying on their back the carcasses of the young camels. So this is another reason offered by our sages in the Talmud that Nadav Raviyah were impatient to assume leadership roles. And as a result of that, because they were saying, when will these old people finally, finally die? They were buried by Moshe and Aaron. Now, if you read what I say to say about Nadav Raviyah, this is like a very long list of crimes allegedly committed by Nadav Raviyah. And you read them, and it makes them sound like real villains. But the truth is the exact opposite. The Midrash points out that there are four places in the Torah where the death of Nadavaviyu is recounted. Parsha Shmini when it happened, Parsha's Achremos, also in Leviticus when the Torah continues the narrative. And in our Parsha, Parsha's Bamidbar, and later on in the book of Numbers chapter 26. And in every instance where it talks about the death of Nadavaviyu, it talks about the sin of Nadavaviyu. And the reason for that is to not make the mistaken assumption that they had all kinds of sins. It explicitly links their demise to their mistake to tell us that this is the only mistake that these two luminaries, these two giants made. And no one could come and claim that there are other unknown and unmentioned sins that contributed to their death. This was it. And even this mistake, there doesn't seem to be a consensus. Our sages are struggling to find what exactly did wrong. It's not so clear cut. It's hard for a consensus to emerge because our sages are, are scrutinizing so hard, just squinting to try to find something wrong with them. And you know, our sages tell us that we read about the death of Nathan of you on Yom Kippur. And we are encouraged to cry over the demise of these two princes. And someone who cries tearfully on Yom Kippur when they read about the death of Nadavadavihu, their sins will be atoned for, will be expiated, and their children will not die in their lifetimes. These are absolute giants. And their death is a great mystery. And even today, we're crying over it. We're so perplexed by it. We don't understand it. You know, I was thinking that maybe this is one of the most consequential events or moments of our history. Moshe tells us these two people were greater than Moshe and Aaron. What would our nation look like if they were able to succeed Moshe and Aaron? If we had two luminaries who were even greater than Moshe and Aaron to succeed them, I feel like our nation would, would look really different. And that's why it's something that we revisit so often and we cry over because it is such a tragedy for our people. And we have to acknowledge, of course, that we don't fully understand what exactly went on. It is beyond us. But of course, here at the Parsha Podcast, that won't stop us. We're going to try to figure out. We're going to try to throw in our two cents on this question. And actually... I did look at some of my old notes in Parsha Shemini of last year. 
in an episode titled Find Your Breach, we suggested an approach to understand what went wrong here with other of you. But today, we will suggest a different approach. Something that I think maybe connects some of the various explanations offered by our sages to unify them into one, one theme that really underlies all the ideas featured in our sages. So the sources, they offer us so many disparate, so many varied reasons to explain where Nathavan of you went wrong. And it seems to be really random. The ideas are not connected. They were drunk, they were single, they had no children, they brought a foreign fire, they, they wanted leadership in motion Aaron's lifetime. I want to suggest maybe that there is a single theme threaded throughout all, or at least many, of the sages' statements on this subject. And I think if we reveal this idea, it may give us like a nice lesson and an insight that could be useful for us, you know, because these giants, they're way beyond us. Again, greater than Moshe and Aaron. And the mystery of what's actually happening on the deepest level is beyond us. We acknowledge that. But nevertheless, it's part of the Torah, and we are required to ponder and pursue it to the best of our abilities, and specifically to make an emphasis on trying to take a practical lesson home. So that's what we're going to try to do in this week's edition of the Parsha Podcast. We read in our Parsha that Nadav and Aviyu, they died. They died before Hashem when they offered a foreign fire. Ubanim lo hayulahem. And they had no sons. They had no children. They died childless. And the Talmud asked the question, wait a minute, why is this relevant? What's the relevance of their childlessness? Says the Talmud in the book of Yohamus on page 64a. Ubanim lo hayulahem, they had no children. Ha hayulahem, banim. But had they had sons, lo, mesu, they would not have died. Talmud tells us that it's really critical to their story that they had no sons, they had no children, because had they had children, they would not have died. Now, what does that mean? So a few weeks ago, we suggested one answer based upon the Das Zakanim. We quoted this a few weeks ago, that, yeah, they would have died, but they wouldn't have been really dead because they would have had continuity. If you leave a child, you know, your chromosomes are actually alive in this world, then you're not really dead. You may be dead, but, you know, y- your life continues in your children. That's one idea. Someone who dies, yes, they're they're dead, but they endure if they have children, if they leave children in this world after they pass. That's one idea. Perhaps we can suggest that had they had children, they wouldn't have brought the unauthorized sacrifice, meaning they wouldn't have sinned. Maybe what the Talmud's telling us is that the flaw, critical alpha flaw, that led them to not have children was the same flaw at play when they brought the unauthorized sacrifice. Let's explain. Why didn't they have any children? So the Talmud tells us, because they weren't married. Well, why weren't they married? So we mentioned this a few weeks ago. An incredible Midrash. The Midrash says that they were aloof. They were aristocratic. They were better than everyone else. 
These were the two most eligible bachelors amongst the nation. And all the young girls were waiting out. I'm waiting out. Maybe I'll be a candidate to marry Nadav or Avil. Again, these were the crown princes of the Jewish people, destined to replace Moshe and Aaron, greater than Moshe and Aaron, to a certain extent. The absolute best, choicest products of our people. And none of you didn't want to get married. And they said, well, our uncle's Moshe, the king of the Jews. Our father is Aaron, the high priest. Our other uncle from the other side, which is our, our maternal uncle, mother's brother, is Nachshon ben Aminadav, who was the prince of the tribe of Judah. And we're destined to replace Moshe and Aaron. And we're the only priests, we're, we're the only family of priests amongst the Jewish people. There are exactly a grand total of five priests in the entire nation. And we're two of them. You tell me who is up to our standards. You tell me a prospective candidate that would not be us marrying down, that we wouldn't have to settle to marry. Concludes the Midrash. The reason why they died is because they weren't married. So perhaps we can suggest an idea. We know, this is something we talk about a lot here at the Parsha Podcast, we know that we were all created to do something. They might have created us for a reason. And of course, the answer to that is the Torah. The Torah outlines for us what we need to do to live life according to the Almighty's standards. But we also know that beyond the Torah's guidance that is universal to every Jew, which is what we call the 613 mitzvos. beyond that, there's something that I need to do as an individual beyond the 613, that's like my life mission, and that differentiates me from every other person. I have to be the best version of me, and I have to accomplish what I specifically need to do. There's a reason why God placed me here, and if I find that, I can live the life that the Almighty wants me to live. And of course, everyone's everyone's different. And we don't have allowances for people to say, well, I can't do 613 mitzvahs. That's beyond me. No, the 613, well, that's that's universal. That's the basic expectation of every Jew. But beyond that, what are you supposed to do with your life? What mission were you created for? What was the mission that God assigned to you beyond the 613? What's something that only you can do? That is very different. And the Almighty distributes those missions and also distributes people with the potential and the, the, the ability and, and the talent and the skill to actually do that mission. So some people have greater potential because they have outsized responsibility due to their greater ability. But regardless, the Almighty expects you to do what you can do given your qualities. That's an idea we talk about a lot. But we also know that God will position a person to enable them to accomplish that mission. 
Meaning that the, the situation that you find yourself in, the circumstances of your life, the orientation of your life, the time and place in history, the whole background, the whole setting of your life, that's the arena in which you can accomplish what you were created to do. So again, we have the Sitzratin, and that is universal across the board. Ever since Sinai, the Jewish nation has committed itself to do that, and that doesn't change. But beyond that, there is an individualized mission, something which is unique to us individually, and that is very wildly different. Every individual is tailored, individually tailored by God to accomplish what they need to accomplish. Now, the Venevil, the two sons of Aaron, they were destined for really great things. But perhaps their flaw was that they, they were reaching to accomplish their greatness. They sought to change their environment in which they were in. They wanted to kind of batter through the limitations that God placed upon them. They wanted to really get that greatness. And they wanted to leave the setting and the state in which God placed them in. They did not accept the environment that God placed them in and say, well, this is where God placed me. Let me do what I can here. Let me make the most of my circumstance and my ability. Instead, they sought to alter their state to be able to achieve their greatness. And that was their flaw. And I think that that idea, that general principle fits into a lot of what our sages are telling us. They were drunk. So you read that today, you're like, oh, they're playing beer pong. They're doing shot for shot, drinking for the thrill. Of course not. You can't tell me that there's someone who is, on any dimension, greater than Moshe and Aaron who's just getting drunk for the thrill of it. Can't be. I think what's happening here, what happened there, is that they, our sages are trying to explain to us that they sought to alter their state to be able to achieve a higher level connection with God. They weren't satisfied with their state. They wanted something bigger. They wanted something beyond. And that's why they drank. And that was their flaw. You don't need to alter your state in order to achieve your purpose. Again, they were greater than Moshe and Aaron. They would have succeeded them after Moshe and Aaron passed. But that time did not quite arrive yet. During Moshe and Aaron's lifetime, what was the situation in which Nathan and Avi were placed? They were placed in a situation where they needed to be subservient to Moshe and Aaron. Aaron and Moshe are walking, and they're walking behind them. And notwithstanding the fact that they're greater, the situation that God placed them in was one where they had to walk behind them. That was the position, that was the environment, that was the circumstances, that was the setting in which God placed them in, and they wanted to alter it. They're strolling behind Moshe and Aaron, and they're lamenting the fact that they don't quite have yet the leadership reins. Instead of acknowledging that God placed them here and now in this situation beneath Moshe and Aaron, and thinking about what they could do now in this state, they sought to change their state. They brought an unauthorized sacrifice. Again, this is a departure from the circumstances of God. He doesn't want you to do that. Don't artificially reach for greatness. Stay grounded on the ground that God placed you upon. 
I think this extends to their familial woes. They did not think that any woman was good enough for them. And you know what? There's a really good case that they can make. But God is the one who puts man and woman together. Perhaps their flaw was the same idea. They forgot that the Almighty puts you in a given place and wants you to live in that place and in that situation and in that circumstances and do what Hashem expects of you in that situation. And he assigns a job for you. And he arranges a wife for you. There will be someone for you. You were not created to be alone. What would have happened had they got married? They would have settled, right? Because there's no one who can match them. Every conceivable spousal candidate would be something that's just, if you just objectively weigh it, they're not as great. It has nothing of you. But that would be a tacit acknowledgement of the fact that we need to do what we can in the environment in which God places us. Had they recognized that, had they had that perception, they wouldn't have made that blunder and they wouldn't have died. We are in the run-up to the festival of Shavuos. And there is an ancient custom to study the 48 ways to wisdom as featured in the sixth chapter of Pertuavos. You know, the days between Pesach and Shavuos, we get ready for Torah. And there are 48 different ways to receive Torah. And it is a widespread custom to study those 48 ways during the days between Pesach and Shavuos. One of those ways is Hamakir Esmekomo. Someone who knows his place. What this means is you recognize the place in which you were placed. The location, the orientation, the setting, the environment in which you were placed. If you know that and you recognize that this is where God wants you to be, and this is where you can achieve that greatness that you're destined to accomplish, if you know that and recognize that, and embrace that, that's a way to get Torah. Perhaps this was their flaw. They sought to find a different place in which to operate. They thought that their greatness would be achieved in a state other than the state that God placed them in, and therefore they tried to leave their place, to leave their circumstances, instead of realizing that their destiny would be achieved exactly where God positioned them. You know, maybe we can even say that this idea really fits in nicely with some of the other themes of our parsha. So, for example, our favorite Rashi. Maybe we shouldn't say that. We don't have favorite verses or favorite Rashis, but a Rashi that we really love that we want to put on a bumper sticker. Do your job, not God's job. It's God's job to set you up, to position you. To put you in a place, in an environment, in a setting, with the tools, with the abilities, with the qualities, with the background, with the complete package of what you need to do to accomplish your mission. That's God's job. What's your job? Your job is to execute in that structure, in that universe, in that world. Perhaps we can say, and not having a view, to a certain extent, they wanted to do God's job. 
And that was their flaw. My grandfather used to always say that the happiest blessing that we say every day is the morning blessing, Sha'asa li kol tzartit, God made for me all of my needs. If you realize that in every year of your life, in your material and financial and intellectual and social and cultural and cognitive abilities, spiritual abilities, God made for you everything that you need. And again, it's important to stress, this does not mean that, that someone can say, well, I can't do the 613. This is all talking about beyond the 613. Beyond the 613, once we're talking about what is my unique individual contribution to existence that only I can do, whatever that is, I have all my needs. That is part of God's job. Don't do God's job for him. He knows exactly how to best position you. He did a great job and he prepared everything you need and he prepared the footsteps of man, you don't need to leave a situation. You don't need to find a different place, so to speak. Don't do God's job. He can do it very well. Don't need to alter your state to accomplish your greatness. Samuel told Saul that he had the opposite problem. Saul's almost the opposite of another Navio. Saul was the king of the Jews, and he didn't want to lead. And he viewed himself as the smallest of the nation. And Samuel said, no, no, no. you have to know your place. Your place is on the throne. That's where God wants you to be. Now the Navio, where did God want them to be? In their state. You don't need alcohol to get there with their limitations. You don't need to go into the Holy of Holies to get there. As second in command, as leaders or designated leaders of the Jewish people, but subservient to Moshe and Aaron, that's what God wanted them to be. And they wanted to change that, and that was their flaw. Our sages tell us, in the more, shall we say, esoteric literature, that Nadav and Avio were reincarnated into their nephew, Pinchas. Now, how that works, how reincarnation works, I don't even know. Who knows? But that's what I say just tell us. It seems to me that if this was the flaw of Nadav and Avio, Pinchas is someone who represents the rectification of that. Because what happened with Pinchas? Pinchas was the one, of course, who skewered those two sinners we're going to read about in a couple of weeks in the book of Numbers. And the Talmud tells us that before Pinchas did that gallant act of valor and zealotry, he consulted with Moshe. Unlike none of you who did not consult Moshe, he consulted with Moshe. And the Talmud says, that Moshe says, okay, it's your job to do it. Only after he was told, this is what you need to do, this is what God positioned you, this is the area in which you need to be, only then did he execute his zealotry. Only once he knew this was within the realm of what he needed to do, only then did he do it. If, as our sages tell us, not that the came back, reincarnated, however that works, into Pinchas, we do see that the rectification was actualized in Pinchas.
So this is my speculation. This is my suggestion to understand the the overarching idea of what happened with the review. And I think if this is true, it's really a great lesson for us. Well, even if it's not true, <laughs> it's it's definitely a great lesson for us. But I think we can read this into a lot of what our sages are telling us about another view. And the lesson for us is God does his job flawlessly. And he made for us everything that we need. And we may think that we need something that we don't have, and that would be a grave error. We may think that we need to have a stature, a position, an ability, a different state of being to achieve our greatness, but no. God positions us for that greatness. He does his job flawlessly. Now it's our job to do what we need to do, and it's our choice to live up to the best expectations of us given our circumstances. Okay, let's hit this week's exquisite insight. And we call it an insight because sometimes it's just that. It's just an idea to get our brains rattling in our skull. It's just an idea to pique our curiosity or to make us think a little bit deeper into a verse or an idea of the Parsha. And you cannot expect me to say it's an insight, but it's uh, I'm going to give you the complete story, the complete comprehensive story. It's an insight. So here's the insight. Our parsha begins with the counting of the Jewish people. Counting. Now, what's the verse that talks about the counting? Kol zachar legulgelosam. Every male legulgelosam, which means it means their skull, their head. So even the the literature talks about well, what if someone's born a Siamese twin? So it's one body but two heads. How many people do you count? That was the question that they just talk about. But the word legul gilosum means their skull, their head. Every male according to their head. The Kabbalists tell us something a little bit deeper. Moshe is counting all the Jews. Legul gilosum. The word gilgul means to roll, just like you know, a head is kind of spherical. I guess it could roll. Heads will roll. I guess that's that's maybe that's the origin of that. But the word gilgul also means reincarnation, where the soul rolls into a new existence, a new body, a new identity. It's the same soul, but now it has reemerged in a gilgul, as it is called in Hebrew, in a reincarnation in some other existence, some other orientation. So the Kabbalists tell us that when Moshe was counting the Jews, he wasn't just looking at them as a body, certainly not. He was also looking at them as a soul, but he was also evaluating and judging them, not just in their current existence, but in all future appearances of this soul and every reincarnation, every incarnation of this soul, Moshe was counting them. And that's the word, it means, of course, on one level, it means their heads, according to their heads or according to their skulls, but it also means, say, the Kabbalists on a deeper level, he was looking and envisioning and witnessing and seeing all the future iterations and incarnations of every soul that he was encountering. What an idea. And the Kabbalists add, and again, this is an insight, it's not complete. The Kabbalists add, it says, call Zachar le Google or some, every, every male, every male, 
And they quote the Arizal, the greatest of the Kabbalists, who says that reincarnation, it's mostly males. Mostly males come back. My dad used to make a joke. I think I said the jo- this joke in the past. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. The few of y'all who are still listening can remind me. My dad used to say that, you know what, when a, a man fixes some of his flaws and lives a whole life and then dies not fully fixed, not fully refined, and uh, he comes back as another man and goes through this cycle until he's fully refined and then he comes back as a female. That was my father's joke. And he could say it because my mother, who I don't think y'all have ever met, most of y'all, my mother's like one of the most amazing women ever, just an incredible, incredible woman. So it made sense that he could say that. He could, he could say that, that, you know, the women, once they're, they're, they're so perfect, they don't need to come back. But apparently this is actually what that result says. That most of the reincarnations are male. And that's why it says, Kol Zahar, every male, Legul Gilosam. What an insight. What an idea. Now, what exactly this means and how it all works, I don't know. I will tell you that I am working on this intriguing and tantalizing subject, the subject of reincarnation, in one of my other podcasts. You're listening right to the Parsha podcast. But there's another podcast that I am fortunate enough to host called Torah 101. And we're talking about these esoteric and arcane and eschatological ideas of what happens after you die and reward and punishment and the afterlife. And one of the modules that I'm working on is reincarnation. So I'm going to share what I know or what I discover in that. But this is just an insight. It's not complete. I didn't promise you a comprehensive insight. It's an exquisite insight. And I hope you enjoyed it. To me, it rattled my skull. Not just my skull, the ghoul galosam. It's kind of rattling. I thought it was interesting. I figured I'd share. If you don't like it, send me an email. If you do like it, send me an email, email which is rabbiwichiba.com. I thank you for listening. I thank you for making May of 2022 the month with the most downloads in the history of Torch Podcasts going back almost a decade. Thank you so much for your friendship and your listenership and your kindness. Have a great day. Have a fantastic week. And have a splendid stupendous, phenomenal, wonderful, peaceful, inspiring, invigorating, uplifting, peaceful Shabbos and Shavuos upcoming. Please, God, please, God, we'll all have an incredible Yom Tov, an incredible festival. We will all get in the zone of reenacting the sign of revelation, reenacting the receiving of the Torah. Please, God, we will talk again next week.